There are many things that go on in a human life, and our job is to contain all the contradictions and paradoxes uh, that are among those things and not try to have a strong ego so that we can have this tight uh, focus on our lives that we call ego and, and can be in control, but rather be less in control and allow a lot more to happen that, con that is contradictory and puzzling and difficult to hold together. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. I'm your host, John Price. Today's a celebration. It's the 50th episode of The Sacred Speaks. And I, don't, I know I'm, there's a part of me that knew this day would come, but I'm, it's really nice to be here, and it's a nice moment of reflection. Looking back at all these conversations and all the relationships that have been created as a result of this project, I feel an enormous sense of gratitude and to take a moment to notice how <laughs> different uh, and of course how similar things are but it's it's worked i'm getting emails from people who are letting me know how the project has changed them and affected their experience so it's working <laughs> and uh, and today is a celebratory day the participant, Dr. Thomas Moore, whom I'll introduce in a moment if you don't know him, it, it's one of those crazy, I don't understand how it just happened that on the celebratory 50th episode I would be talking to Thomas Moore, who, who really has been mining through the territory that got me into this project. Um, he's, he's been doing this for many, many years. Initially, the, the title of this project was Finding the Sacred in the Everyday, and I landed on the Sacred Speaks. And Finding the Sacred in the Everyday is one of the things that Thomas More has been writing about for three decades. I feel an enormous... <laughs> I want to say the word love. I feel a lot of love for him and for his work. I'm I'm talking to the therapist in my office and, and you know one of the things we've started doing is reading his book because I think it's such an important perspective and you'll you'll hopefully understand more after you listen to our conversation today. So Thomas, thank you for making the time. Thank you for doing what you do. And thank you for helping all of us to reimagine our lived experience. Look Thomas up at Thomas Moore soul.com that's t-h-o-m-a-s m-o-o-r-e s-o-u-l dot com it's a great site he's got a lot of stuff to do on there so go check it out let me introduce you via his bio 
which I cannot find right now. There we go. Thomas More is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Care of the Soul. He has written 24 other books about bringing soul to personal life and culture, deepening spirituality, humanizing medicine, finding meaningful work, imagining sexuality with soul, and doing religion in a fresh way. In his youth, he was a Catholic monk and studied music composition. He has a Ph.D. in religious studies from Syracuse University and was a university professor for a number of years. He is also a psychotherapist influenced mainly by C.G. Jung and James Hillman. In his work, he brings together spirituality, mythology, depth psychology, and the arts, emphasizing the importance of images and imagination. He often travels and lectures, hoping to help create a more soulful society. Thomas also writes fiction, arranges music, and plays golf in New Hampshire, where he's lived for 20 years. The whole family's in on it, by the way. His bio goes on. He says his family members are deeply involved in spiritual approaches to the arts. His wife, Hari Kiran, is an accomplished painter and teaches courses she's created on yoga and art. His daughter, Ajit, is a musician and recording artist and spiritual teacher. And his stepson, Abraham, is an architect focusing on design related to the social aspects of buildings. Or of building. That's great. Thanks, Thomas. A couple other notes and then we'll get started. This project, The Sacred Speaks, check it out at thesacredspeaks.com. Like it, share it, comment, <laughs> do whatever you can on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, any of the SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, <laughs> where all, all these platforms that a project like this shows up. That would be very wonderful of you. Thank you. Music. So Ian Moore is today's music participant. You can check him out at ianmoore.com, I-A-N-M-O-O-R-E. I've been listening to Ian Moore for many years, and so it's really nice to reconnect with his music. The first clip that you heard is a song called Time of Dying. It's off an album in 2011 called The First Third. At the end of the episode, I'll play a song from his 1999 release, Got the Green Grass. The song is Many Rivers to Cross. I've played a number of shows with Ian Moore, and he has continued to produce great music, so thanks for that. The Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a psychotherapy, integrative, holistic acupuncture practice in Houston, Texas. Check out the center at the Center for HAS. T-H-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-H-A-S dot com. This is a practice that my wife and I started years ago, and we're growing and expanding, so it's really fun to kind of have the, um, the brick-and-mortar place where we do the soul tending. What else? Ah, theme music, Modern Nations. I've been hearing from so many of you guys that Modern Nations is really... Uh, entered into your uh, your sphere, your music sphere. So good, I'm glad they have. Look at the map at modernnationsmusic.com. The song that I play throughout every episode is called Clouds. Anything else? I don't think so. Other than I'm grateful to be continuing to do this. I'm eager to go from 50 to 100. I've already scheduled about six more podcast episodes, so the reading that I'm doing is really blowing my mind. I'm talking I'm about to talk to some really fun people. Is that it? 
think that's it. Yeah, that's it. We'll leave it there. Thanks for being here. Thomas Moore, I've, I'm really honored and excited for you oh. to make the time to be able to talk with me today. I've enjoyed reading your books, and um, it's ex it's really exciting to see where our conversation goes. So I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you, John. I appreciate it, too. Really, the first thing that I want to find out is kind of more autobiographical on your end, um, because I, I just started to think about your experience in the priesthood. So maybe, if you don't mind, let's start there. What what dove you into that life, um, even though your mother, it seems, was a bit resistant to you going into the priesthood? She was uh, resistant to me going in so early. I was only 13 years old. <laughs> How but dare it was she? A time <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, she didn't want to lose me, you know, leave me, let me go. And I, I, as I get older, the more the older I get, the more I identify with her. Yeah. That that was really a, a, a tough thing to ask of my parents, and, but I was just so taken up. I don't know. I was I was a young kid, and there were uh, young men around me that I really uh, admired and appreciated who were going off to this Catholic seminary, and they would come back in the summers, and I would spend time with them. And it seemed to me they were just great people, uh, living a wonderful life with a, a great ambition. I mean, I, there, for a young Catholic kid, there was nothing more you could do with your life than to become a priest. So I was really just swept away by that. And and uh, I, I I wanted it so badly that it, I overcame my, my parents' wishes. I mean, they've ultimately let me go, but uh, that's how it happened. What was it at 13 that was catching your interest? Well, you know, when I look at it now, I don't want to sound uh, too spooky about this, but I do look back and see that I, I really feel that my life has been, was not my cho my choice. You know, the things I've done were not my choosing, really. They were responses that I made to developments that happened. And I mean, I, I don't like to say, because it can be so easily misconstrued, I don't like to say that this was all planned out somehow, and, and yet it feels that way to me. And hmm. without, without making that too, too literal, I just want to say that when I look back on my life, I don't think I, I, don't think I made many big choices at, at all on my, my own. I responded to opportunities and to losses and that kind of thing. That, that's what shaped my life. So at the very beginning, I feel that uh, my family says this, that there was some sort of, you feel a sense of destiny very early on, 13, to go out and leave this. I lived in a very small world of uh, my family, Irish Catholic family. It was a very small world. They had never traveled. And no one had gone to university or anything like that. They were all plumbers. You know, they were great, wonderful, salt-of-the-earth people. And um, and I love them and still do. And uh, so I think that uh, what was going on there partly was to enter a bigger world, and that's what happened at that time. That that It's funny, you would begin with that. We would begin with that uh, struggle at the very beginning. 
at 13 because that really would mark the way I lived ever ever after. Well, and that, and, and again, I, I want to, yeah, let maybe following some of your kind of autobiography is important here because I'm being reminded of some of the, th I had the great gift of listening to you speak a couple weeks ago at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. And so I'm probably going to be dipping <laughs> in and out of, uh, of that lecture and also what uh, you've written. And what comes up there for me is, is a reference that you made to Plato. I know you're influenced by his writings and that the idea that we are caught by ideas, not we have ideas, you know, they have us. And as you look back on your life, what, what ideas do you see that kind of take hold of you? Um, well, you know, the, it's hard to say. I, uh, when I left home at 13, I really entered a monastic life right away. Uh, it was somewhat modified, but it was a life of uh, uh, meditation, prayer, ritual, um, and uh, study, and not much playing around. It was a pretty heavy uh, way of life, and I liked it. I, I liked all of it. I liked the study very much, and I never lost it. I, I loved it. I, the approach to study that I got. I was taught that study was part of the monastic life, that that was equal to prayer and meditation. And I've, I've never lost that idea. So when I work now, when I study and write my books, I'm living the life of the monk still, and that's what I want. I want to maintain that monk's life. And um, so that was a big idea for me. I got a lot of ideas from uh, the monastic experience and the community, living in community and being an individual. Uh, those things were pretty well equal in the monastic life. No one, there was a law, a rule in our, in our community that no one could come into my room, you know, ever, even if I invited them. You couldn't come into your private space. I liked that. I liked that privacy. So I learned that lesson. You see, there are all kinds of lessons. I could go on and on, lessons that, go, that you learn. And they become them. And I'm writing, so I write a book in my 70s called um, A Religion of One's Own. And I'm very much influenced by my experiences when I was 15 years old. Well, and maybe that is a time to kind of jump ship. One of the main, something that really stuck out in, and I'll get the books confused because I was reading them both at the same time, Care of the Soul and Religion of One's Own. One of the ideas that you talk about is family as myth. And we psychotherapists sometimes look for somebody, we look at somebody's history as cause. And I, so I, w I wonder if you can tend to that idea a little bit and um, sure. grow it. Sure. It's not an easy one. It's very subtle. But it's not, an e it's not easy to express, but very important. So uh, I work in what we call archetypal psychology, and it's uh, not exactly the same as Jungian psychology, and the emphasis there is on trying not to take anything literally, but see the narratives and stories and images and everything that goes on. And so when I look at the family, uh, and uh, Hillman, James Hillman, who was you know, a good friend of mine, and 
I learned a lot from him and his writings and also just being with him. He always used to say forcefully that uh, we should not blame the parents for what goes on in our adult lives. But what happens is I understand it. I've never, I never actually heard him describe it in exactly this way, but I, I think what happens is that uh, the parents embody the mythic parents. Our actual parents are the embodiment of, in their own way, in their own small way, of the great parents. In other words, we might find mother and father everywhere we turn throughout our lives. We find parent, parent figures. So what we're encountering is a parent the image of parent, the great image of mother and father. And uh, so with our own parents, what we're doing is encountering that mythic uh, experience that's available to us all as human beings, that mother and father are very important to us. We need their support and direction and identity, all of that. But it's not literal. It's not, it's not just your, your own mother and father. They, they give us a piece of it because they embody the myth. But then we might go to school. I know I did, and I found all kinds of father figures in school. Not too many mother figures, but a lot of father figures because of the school I went to. And they were generally very, very positive figures, and they're each different. And that's the beauty of it, because that means that each individual man that I encountered as a father um, gave me... an aspect of fathering that the, no one else could. So it was varied. That's what I mean by the myth. The father figure is there, and I encounter it and feel it. With each person, it's like they are the avatar, the embodiment of that myth. And uh, so I don't want to reduce. I don't want to say that, the, that my parents are responsible for my life, But I have to say that the mother and father figures that I did encounter had a huge influence on me. Well, and you talk about, I mean, this this seems like it leads us into a discussion about projection that we talk about in the collective quite a lot. You know, that, that there is an easy move here to assume that my early experiences, I then kind of, quote, recreate over and over again, or I see threads of those early experiences in my current or later experiences. And what you're saying there is a bit different than that approach. Yes, yes, absolutely. So what do you say to the critic who says, come on, you know, you can't posit that there's some kind of uh, thread of narrative, right? I mean, we are, we will, we see meaning in clouds. You know, we see meaning in, you know, these faceless and nameless figures that seems familiar to us. That's There's something human, fundamentally human about that. Yes, there is. In fact, uh, I think what we see in clouds are very, very important. Uh, we're able to see what, wherever we look to see an image and to take it seriously, to let it, uh, let it impact us. And if you happen to see an image in a cloud, I, I would... See, that's my idea. I think this is in part in this book, Religion of One's Own, where I talk about uh, reading the signs of the world that you're in. And uh, that's one thing you can do. You can read these signs everywhere. And uh, so that's serious. That's important. So I don't use the word projection myself. You know, I never use it. I, 
I don't think that's the best way to look at these things. So when I say that you encounter maybe the mythic father in some teacher that comes along, I don't see that as projection at all. That's not your doing. What you're doing is encountering, you're living deeply in a realm of images and narratives. And you are not doing that. It's just that's what you encounter. And your job is to, uh, to allow that the world is more subtle and complex, that, uh, that, that we do live in a mythic environment where images are coming at us all the time, and some of them very important. And one of those images that comes through is the parent. So you encounter the image, you don't project it. Encounter. To go back for a second, because um, this may seem new to folks, I'm assuming plenty of folks that listen to this show are going to know what archetypal psychology is. But would you tend to that a little bit? And maybe I'm also curious, selfishly, I'm a little bit interested in your collision with James Hillman and where that kind of um, incredible author, you two, I, I would love to be in on some of those conversations. But could you, could you speak to that a little bit? So... Um... Um, Hillman and I hit it off quite well, and this was in the 1970s, mid-70s. We began corresponding, actually early 70s, began corresponding with each other, and I was reading his stuff as he wrote it. He would send it to me from Zurich, where he was living. He was just publishing articles in obscure journals at the time. And I loved them. I thought they were fantastic. And I would write to him about them, and we understood each other. We had a similar background in classics, and uh, he had gone to the Sorbonne and had gone to Trinity College in Dublin. And he wanted to be a writer. He was a traveler and kind of a searcher for a long while. And he found Jung, and that really affected him greatly. But he had had this very literary background. And I think what he saw right away was that this extreme psychological point of view from Jung, the way he was interpreted, was not, was not adequate. And so he, he revisioned a lot of what he found in Jung. He didn't just take Jung as it was presented. He was not a carbon copy of Jung in any way. Some people didn't like that because they felt that he, that he didn't revere the great master. And I mean, I was told that many times, and I was I was criticized for following Hillman instead of being a strict Jungian. Yeah. I've never been a Jungian analyst, you know. I, I I always say people somewhat facetiously that I was a Catholic. I don't need to be a Jungian, you know. It's like it's that's a system of of life where you give too much over to a leader. I don't want to do that ever. And Hillman was much more dedicated to Jung than I have ever been. Although when I say that, I want you to know I read Jung every day and I speak at Jung societies constantly. I just spoke to about four or five of them in the past few months. Right. So um, I love the Jung. I love Jung's work immensely, and I I, I do restudy it. I I just read this volume sixteen, his book on psychotherapy. I read that very closely for about the fifth time recently. I mean, I really study him, but I like you like Hillman. I'm not. I'm not a slave to Jung's language and to his ideas. So um, Hillman then uh, it appealed to me because, like one of the things he did, that really, I'll mention a couple of things, ideas of this that really appealed to me. One was he, he um, took the gender out of the anima and animus in Jung's psychology. Mm -hmm. 
he um, he realized, and it's it's pretty clear when you look at that that at Jung's time it made sense. He would say that men have a an inner woman that uh, anima who guides them and can offer them uh, an approach to the world and to their soul, and women have an inner animus that is sort of contrary to their outer life, but gives them a way of uh, of using their their judgment and intelligence. Uh, to uh, that everyone has to have. Hillman just got rid of the gender issue altogether and said, well, of course, we all are looking for soul and spirit, both anima and animus. We, we all, men and women and everything else, even things, um, have a soul and spirit, and there's no need to divide that among the genders. That, that was a great liberation for me. I read that and I got it immediately. It took me two seconds to see the importance of that. Yeah and go on from there with everything I did. The other thing he did was he wrote an early essay that I again read, not in a book, but in an essay form on polytheism, psychological polytheism, which is a way of saying that there are many things that go on in a human life, and our job is to contain all the contradictions and paradoxes uh, that are among those things and not try to have a strong ego so that we can have this tight uh, focus on our lives that we call ego and, and can be in control, but rather be less in control and allow a lot more to happen that con that is contradictory and puzzling and difficult to hold together. So that I thought, wow, there goes wholeness and integration and all those terms I never liked anyway. You know, so like ever since that moment, the 1970s, I've never, I've never written about wholeness or integrating things. And that, to me, was a great liberation. And I found that in Hillman's essay on polytheism. And so on, so on. whenever he published a book, I'd find some other, some other great insight that I could use for my own life and my work. So um, then we became friends, and we, we lived in the same city for five or six years and did a lot of things socially and individually. He and I used to go shopping and go to restaurants and stuff like that. That was all very... Uh, rich for me because he lived that philosophy of his, and I could see it in, in practice as we lived. And, and he he um, would counsel me at times. You know, if I was going through a rough patch, he'd come over to my house. And we'd talk about things, and so it was it was uh, a very rich and important uh, relationship, maybe one of the most important ones in my life. And uh, archetypal psychology is uh, is what he called his own approach, which differs significantly from Jung, for one thing, these, these issues I just brought up, but others as well. And um, so I, uh, I, owe a, I owe a great deal to him, and I, I used to quote him so much. He told me once, he said, stop quoting me. He said, uh, he said uh, we have the same background. And we're going from the same sources. You don't have to use my name every time. He said he understood that, you know, I wanted to acknowledge if I felt that he had said something significant. But he told me I'm doing it too much. So I, I, I let up on it. And then people began complaining that I was plagiarizing Hillman. <laughs> so, you know, you can't win. You can't You're win. Right. You're screwed either way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, thanks for the these... I, I do a lot of lectures and I find myself giving this uh, 
five-minute disclaimer when talking about mother, father, masculine, feminine. And I'm noticing, you know, I fought, my, my friend Rodney and I talk about, you know, is it Eros and Logos and how do we talk about, you know, how do we encapsulate for an educational, for an educational perspective, but not colonize? And And that's actually something that I really was excited to talk to you about is this tendency to colonize and i think anybody you know mining in the in the caves of archetypal psychology would be an expert on noticing these tendencies of colonization can you say something about that if, see if i understand you correctly do you mean something like you come up with an, a great idea like jung did and you kind of create or, or you somehow get, get a whole number of followers to create a school and that that but also um uh, you know our tendency to use in the language that we use we we it, it's a grasping of it, it in the same way that it helps us begin to understand we also cling to the words that we use and so there's that i see yeah yeah, yeah they're not they're not free they're yeah. not Free. Yeah, I. I mean, I do that. You know, I. Uh, I feel I do that anyway. I try. Um, not to try hard because it's just nat natural to me. But when I write my books, I. I really try not not to write books that are, use technical language. I do use terms from history all over the place, but it's not out of a single or even just a few systems. I, I want to find ordinary words that people can understand. And I don't do that just to be, you know, some people say that what I do is um, I, I make things intelligible to the readers or I make them, I forget the word they use, make them readable, something like that. Mm. Um, I really don't, that's not my intention generally. My intention is to write in, as a writer, as a writer, I feel I want to write to anyone. I don't want to use a lot of jargon. I do use it sometimes, a little psychological jargon or archetypal jargon or literary jargon. I use it occasionally when I think it's important. But generally speaking, I try to use language that is not uh, is not from any particular system. And I think you know, I mean, for me, it works in one way. The uh, I, I do have a big readership. People from all over the world read these books, and they take them to heart. Um, I've been seen as a self-help writer, and I don't see myself that way at all. Um, but I, I, I do see myself as a therapist writer. That, I write as a therapist, that's for sure. And so I want to have words that are healing words or helpful words, And but I don't want jargon. And so I, I really try to avoid that. I, you know, I can't help at times, but I don't use a lot of Jungian or or Hillmanian jargon. I think I try to I try to keep it down as to a minimum. Well, what do you think? And this is such a general question, but what do you think needs to be healed? What? Why are we so interested as as humans in kind of healing what ails us? Well, the you know the the answer to that that. Uh, Many, many of my friends often give, and I do sometimes, is to quote Yeats, uh, not Yeats, Keats. Keats, when he says that, that talks about uh, 
the purpose of pain and trouble in life, this is a paraphrase, the purpose of trouble and pain in our lives is to school, as he says, this, these are his words, to school an intelligence and make it a soul. So in other words, our pains teach us, our pain and our, our troubles teach us things. We learn things from them and we are changed by them. We are educated, not in the sense of just trained or informed, but we are actually changed. We are educated. We have become more sophisticated about life. And we see things in a more complicated way, complicated in a good sense. So um, the, the healing really is not to get rid of the trouble, but to see how we might be able to approach it and deal with it in a way that actually educates us. And that deep meaning of education, transforming us to live a more sophisticated life. Well, and this may be, I can hear, you know, mine and other people's anxieties about, you know, how does one, how is one educated by childhood abuse or by rape or, you know, when we're traumatized in that way? What do you say yeah. to people that, that kind of say, ah, oh, gosh, look, this is kind of dangerous because all of a sudden we're in a symbolic frame and we're not in the literal frame, like somebody literally was injured. What do you of say course. Well, I've, I've worked with this for years, you know, I'm with people. I've worked with people for years who have had abuse and with psychotic people whose psychosis came from abuse. I mean, I think I, I appreciate that. But what I do, even in my work, is that I, uh, I, I try to help their pain educate themselves for their life. As I just said, I, I mean, it's there. They had the experience, the trauma, and maybe they won't be able to do much with that trauma. They'll be suffering their whole lives. A lot of people have had such terrible trauma and abuse that they really never get get past it entirely. But they can they can begin to see the world differently and see themselves differently by the way you talk to them about their, their experiences. And they may be then able to find meaning in their lives that they wouldn't have found otherwise. So our, our, our point, our, my purpose is not to get rid of the pain. You can't, I don't want to, I don't want to heal a person and say, now you've had this horrible, horrendous experience, and now I can treat you in a way, and you're going to be free of all that pain. I don't think so. But you can come to a point where you can, you can hold the pain, and you can uh, uh, be uh, regularly, constantly, over time, uh, transformed by it, so that you, are, you become a person who is actually much more aware of what human life is really all about because of uh, the kind of reflection you've done on the pain you've had. And so people who are very painful and very pained, I, I know people who have a hard time getting along in life because of their abuse. They have a very hard time getting along in life and may have to uh, be hospitalized occasionally. But they are the most soulful people I know, absolutely. That means they have a depth that has come from reflection on their on their pain and on their abuse that uh, the average person doesn't have because the average person is just going along trying to survive in life without paying attention to 
that level of meaning and and create developing a soul as as Keats said. Keats said, "You school the intelligence and make it a soul." So these people, I think, are able to to be schooled by their pain and their abuse and become soulful people. That's that's our goal. That's our, my aim anyway. It's not to become healthy or to be free of trouble or free of, uh, of pain from past memories, but to be a soulful person. And how have you seen this shift throughout the years? Because I, as a psychotherapist myself, I mean, it's often the you know initial concern to, I don't like my anxiety. I don't like I don't like that my, you know, husband or wife called me a narcissist. You know, I don't like this, this stings to me. And, you know, I think that's a general approach that our society fantasizes about, you know, freedom from suffering. Well, there is a freedom from suffering there in this process. You live a soulful life, you develop some joy. And uh, you don't, uh, there's a transformation of the suffering, I think, in the process of deep therapy. There can be a transformation of the suffering. But you don't just take it away. It might diminish because of that transformation. But I don't see that that's what I can do. You, you become, what you see, I think, over time is that the person changes, transforms and has a different relationship to the past suffering. And therefore, it doesn't, is not overwhelmed by it so much because of that uh, education that's going on. And uh, so that's an achievement in itself. But actually, I think what happens is that the, the bad experience, the painful experience, actually deepens the person if they have, when they develop a, a more uh, a, a deeper relationship to it and understanding of it. So they actually, the pain, the suffering helps make them people with more depth and maybe more sensitivity. And they can go on and, you know, do things out of that that can be very creative and helpful. I find most of those people want to help others. Mm-hmm. So what do you say to somebody that... Uh... That says, you know, I've I've done all this before. I've I've talked about this. You know, like I, I noticed. Yeah, in my in my therapy practice, they say, uh, oh, I've 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 gone all over my mother and my father's stuff. You know, I've I've been through. That. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know. I know. You hear that sometimes. I've already done that. Well, they haven't. You know, I mean, you never. You are never going to deal with that. You can chip away at it a little bit, but. It's, it's like a resource. I see all of that, uh, those experiences with, uh, with families. And I know most of the families that people I deal with have had um, incredibly stupid and dumb uh, parents and other relatives that have done terrible things to them. I mean, horrible, beyond belief. Yeah. And then there's a whole range, you know, of what, what people have done. Um, so it's like a resource. It's like this big, huge resource. I, the image that comes to my mind is as a kid, I grew up in, in up, I, upstate New York in the summers on a farm, my uncle's farm. And behind his weathered old barn, he had this huge pile of manure, you know, and just huge. In fact, we used to slide down it sometimes. 
And uh, that's in a way what I'm talking about. We each have that pile of manure with us that's very fertile and can really fertilize our lives. And it never, it seems to never go away. You know, like you think you, you, you put your shovel in and you work at it for a while and that shovel is nothing compared to the size of the pile. So you just keep working on it forever. Yeah, and, and all those all those things that created it in the first place, they keep creating it. It keeps coming. That's right. They, they keep it keeps getting bigger. <laughs> uh, yes. So I, I'm the three things that come to mind: the way you treated um, in care of the soul, uh, narcissism, jealousy, and depression. For anybody who who's never heard you, heard these ideas tended to in the way that you tended to them, I, I hope you know this is one platform that can help them relate to those really pathologized and demonized aspects of our human experience. So I wonder if we could spend a bit of time just tending to those from from your perspective, from this perspective of archetypal psychology. Sure. So you want to take one, each one? Yeah. Let's, well, I think okay. in, in the order in which you wrote them, it was uh, self-love, I think, then jealousy, and then depression. Yeah, okay. I love talking about narcissism. Um, I always refer to the, to the myth of Narcissus, because I think that gives us insight. Narrative gives us so much insight over theory. Theory doesn't give us as much. So in the story of Narcissus, he is someone who is a young man who he is described as being like marble. That's the image used. He's like marble. He's hard. He's, he's, he's beautiful, but hard. Like marble can be beautiful, but it's hard and cold. cold yeah. And that's who he is. And people want to get close to him, and they, are just, they can't do it because he's so hard and cold. So he's walking through the woods one day and he sees a pond of water and he goes over to it and looks in the pond and he sees his own reflection. And at first, you have to believe that he doesn't recognize himself at first. But he falls in love with what the image he sees. I mean, he has like an infatuation suddenly. He just falls in love with that image of himself, although he doesn't know it's himself. And as he contemplates his image, and this is the way the story's been told for centuries, they emphasize the, the contemplation, that moment of contemplation of oneself in love. Then he gets transformed. He's no longer marble. Now he's a flower. He's a daffodil. He's a narcissus flower. And so he's a transformed. This is in, all told in Ovid's book, Metamorphoses, about metamorphoses that happen in life, changes that can happen in life. So he, um, he is transformed. He's transformed from marble into a flower. And the flower then is his softness and moistness. It's very different. It's like he's transformed completely. You can see narcissism then as an attempt to be loved and a desperate attempt to be loved and uh, for the need for love, to love, to, you know, to love for yourself. So narcissism is usually symptomatically the symptom makes it looks you know looks like you love you love yourself too much, 
but that really indicates that beneath it all that you need that you need to be loved somehow you just don't have enough and so you you exaggerate your need for love but uh, it actually it shows like all symptoms do the symptoms show in extreme what we need and uh, and so nar- narcissism then is a symptom it's a complaint and when you care for it your goal is to find self-love. This is interesting about all symptoms. That the symptom is shows you what you're looking for, but in a twisted way, in a way that doesn't work. Well, because so narcissism, and, and just to plant a seed, it it creates a bit of hell for people because for the network of individuals that are attracted to or repelled by that symptom what an isolating space to be for the individual for all of us really because i i I think talking about our narcissism is probably a better approach than you know definitely we all we all are narcissistic to some extent yes and it 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 goes to the you know kind of clinical space pretty quickly when the narcissism is acting out that need for self-love by by taking out some kind of insecurity on objects in the outer world. But the way you tend to it, it, all of a sudden you're feeling very compassionate for the individual that you may have been a bit contemptuous or, or even distance yourself from. That to me is something that I think we all need to be reminded of. Inside the wound, the genius stirs kind of stuff. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And so it's one of those many, many paradoxes that we encounter in this work and working with the psyche is that uh, there, there are many things that are the opposite of what they appear to be. Or that another way of saying the same thing is that the, yeah, the, the I forget how, what word you use there, but yeah, the, what we're, the goal, the health we're looking for is actually within the symptom. Yeah. You talked about that a lot, homeopathic, homeopathy as a, a, a yeah. kind of metaphor for healing. Yeah. And that to me is a clinician that makes so much sense. And, and gosh, it just, it, you don't turn into a negative parent figure whenever you have this approach to somebody's inner world. Because to, right. to do what the culture That's does right. is it says like, oh, you're a bad person and you need That's to stop right. doing that. That's right. So society tends not to see, be able to have the, the capacity to see with, into the symptom and see what, what the, the psyche is looking for. Instead, it wants, it's, it's, it's repelled by the symptom and then, you know, cast shame on the person or tells them they're, they're pathological or there's something wrong with them. There is, in a way, something wrong, sure, because this person is acting out the symptomatic form of what they're looking for. But once you see it more deeply, you have much. You have an opportunity for empathy and uh, for being able to work it without being repelled. Can you share a story about this? From Do you have anything that comes to mind uh, kind of for something more tangible for folks? Um, well, let's see. Uh, you know, my uh, I recall a young man. You know, uh, sometimes these myths get lived out quite 
uh, quite directly. So Narcissus is a young man. He's what the Jungian and archetypal psychologists would call puer, puer, meaning young, young man. He has that youthful aspect. So there's something about narcissism, no matter how old you are when you have it, that is quite young and immature. So even an old person who's narcissistic will look immature. So I remember a young man who came to me who had all the symptoms of the, both of the narcissist and the puer. Puer was the more general character. You look at him, you just realize right away. And he came in to me telling me that he had just ridden over on his bicycle. Well, a bicycle is a real puer kind of image. It's the kind of thing a young person will like to do. Move fast. Speed is important for the puer. And being on a bicycle is like, you know, it's very young. And it's not like driving your car. It's not the same thing. So here he is coming over with his bicycle on. And, uh, you know, I, so I thought, well, this is this puer. And I, would ex I almost expected you would expect some narcissism there because that's one of the myths of, that the puer uh, engages in. So uh, this man was kind of full of himself, but also very insecure at the same time and uh, thought he could do anything. And he treated women badly. And I thought one thing that he told me I thought was particularly interesting. This is so many years ago. Um, he said that he, he felt like running over his girlfriend with his bicycle or at least pushing his bicycle over his girlfriend or running it into her, something like that. I can't remember the exact thing now. But I thought, wow, that's also very interesting because here he is using the very instrument of his immaturity, of his poor nature, to, to um, demonstrate his violence, his aggression toward women. And, you know, the narcissist was there. He didn't want anything to do with these women who were coming to him. He just repelled them. Um, and there's a kind of poor aggression that is quite dangerous. And a lot of women, especially when it's acted out so literally with a young man, a lot of women who are attracted to the narcissist character um, will be uh, abused in some way or hurt or uh, treated aggressively. And they have a hard time dealing with it because the poor looks so sweet and innocent and wonderful, but the aggression sneaks in there and really gets them. So I felt uh, in dealing with this person, you know, my job is not to, in this case, I mean, he's my client, you know, not the, not the women or not anyone else's. My, my job is to try to, to uh, be with the, accompany this man as he might be able to find his way through the symptom that he has. What does he need? What is he looking for? He needs a way to be, uh, to be young, in a deeper way to really be young, be symptomatically young. He needs, he needs a way to find some love for himself. And he's not getting love because he's treating the women that he wants to be with so badly. He's not getting any love. So um, my orientation then in working with him has got to be to try to find one, for one thing, we might find some roots to his uh, uh, his uh, narcissism, for example, his uh, maybe not having an opportunity to really grow up in his family. You know, that's a possibility. Some kind of that, sometimes that. The poor becomes not an archetype, but a complex. 
Mm-hmm. What I mean by that, the pillar is there as a spirit. We can all have it all any time in our life. But it can become a complex where it takes over your own personal life and and uh, dominates and, and, and makes life very difficult. And I think that was the case with them. So uh, you know, how do you deal with that? You deal with it by trying to deepen that poor spirit, and not to get rid of it, not to say you've got to grow up, but how can, you, how can we help this person be really young in a way that is satisfying so that they don't have to take it out on everyone else? Again, there's such a, I don't know, I think about my, my own puerness. <laughs> I also think about my, you know, how, how much of that part of me that wants to fly and experience and be sensual and um, savor. Uh, a French poet has a, Baudelaire, I think that's the name, has a, has a poem and its title is Get Drunk. You know, get drunk on life, get drunk on sex, get drunk on nature, get drunk, just take it all in. And there's there's such a value to that. But from a from a cultural lens, the culture that seeks to kind of create systems that function for the culture's benefit is is a bit in opposition to that part of us that wants to fly and be weird and different and so i i may i maybe tend to romanticize some of that puer a little bit but what i like about what you're saying is that we're not trying to fix or cure it but deepen its calling so that there's a more uh, maturity and Again, I'm I'm struggling with the groundedness is the term I want to use, but um, you know that coming from somebody who's been told I need to get my feet on the ground so often that I, I may be working out some of my own stuff here. That's fine, you know. Me too. You know, I know most most people who have a lot of that power in them, men and women, are told to grow up and get your feet on the ground and take your life seriously and get a job and all these things. You know, it's funny in our family, in my family, one of the one of the uh, sayings we have that we all we all understand about each other is that we want all each of us to be successful, but we don't want any of us to have a job. It's like <laughs> it's like there is this poor spirit of our family that uh, that doesn't want a job, doesn't want to have to have to be held down in that way. And I think that's perfectly legitimate, but then you better take your poor work pretty seriously. So I have to take my writing seriously, and my wife takes her painting seriously, and my daughter her music seriously, and my stepson, he takes his architecture very seriously, although he's the one of our family that has a bit of a job. <laughs> but it's, uh, we do, that's how you do it. You, you, you don't deny the poor, but you, you give it a seriousness in itself. For what it is. Well, while we're, we're while we're looking at the puer, I also want to think about the other side of that. And so, if we've got this dynamic here between the puer and the culture is saying you need to get your feet on the ground, the symptom of the culture is this desire for stability and security. Yeah. So, if we were treating the culture, how would you approach that? 
What's the symptom? Well, um, so, you know, the other term in this, uh, what we're talking about is puer sanex. Mm -hmm. So sanex is the word for uh, old person. Puer is Latin for a young person, especially young man. Sanex is Latin for old man or woman. Anything that's old is sanex. We get our word senator and senile from that. So um, uh, then the trouble is uh, that when this puer and sanex are, are, first of all, if they're not very solid, not very deep, they tend to, each of them tends to fight each other because they just, it's like they each have a complex. So the culture might have a work complex. We call it the work ethic. So I think it's really true that our society does suffer from a work ethic. We don't understand the importance of play. Let's say when you're building a city, how they put up all these buildings anywhere and they use up every possible piece of ground. Maybe they don't understand that it's very important to have a tennis court or a garden that people can walk through. I mean, ask anyone, I think, most people who live in New York City, how important Central Park is, and they will just say they couldn't live there without it. You know, that it's it's a big park, you know, within that big city. Imagine how valuable that property is, but it's still there. And small parks in any cities, uh, in all the big cities are really so important, but they could be more extensive. But we, the Sanex wants to make as much money as it can that's part of the Saturnine Sanex world to collect money, hoard money. And, um, and the puer then is the, the parks and, and playgrounds are considered puer things, childish. You know, we don't really need them. They're luxuries. What we need are these, these places where we can make money and be about the serious business of working, working all the time. Uh, I feel this, that, by the way, there's another thing here. I, uh, I play golf, and I took up golf late in my life, and I really love it. And um, uh, whenever I mention to people, they're really disappointed because I, they think I should be above that. I shouldn't be doing this, this uh, terrible game of chasing a little white ball. And I think just the opposite. I think that if we have a choice between putting a good golf course in somewhere and an industrial park, I know which way I'd go. I'd put the golf course in. We don't need more industrial parks. We've got so many places for work. I know people need jobs to get along, but I think part of the problem with that is that we don't understand how important it is to play. This is, um, you know, I get this idea primarily from Winnicott, you know, Winnicott, his idea of play, that therapy is play. That's what he says. He makes it, says it right out. Therapy is play. Play is therapy. So I think that um, the culture is suffering under a complex of the work ethic. And therefore, it really has a problem when it sees poor people, people who are uh, not so caught up in that work ethic and so th what happens then is that the uh, there's a clash between the two. So, you know, you get these people who tell tell young people to you better you better get down to work because you've got to you have to make a living and stop fooling around. And 
all these, you know, the stern voice, even the tone of voice lets you know it's the Sainix that's speaking. Mm. So, so um, the, the, our task really is to be able to deepen each of those things, make them more substantial, the Puer approach to life and play, and also um, uh, work, to make work so to the point where they can affect each other so that work has more of a more playful quality and that the play we do is more serious. We take it more seriously. So they, they kind of uh, come in, they kind of intersect with each other more when they're not split apart. It's the split that causes a struggle. I have so many people in my head right now who have <laughs> been sitting in my office in these moments of just terror as they start to feel called to leave their current career or the work that they're doing. And I, yes. I, didn't, I didn't intend on going this direction, but I know you've written extensively about work. And I wonder if you could kind of yeah. talk about that, that kernel, that little kernel <laughs> of, oh shit. <laughs> no, I, I'm talking about a split. I'm now split between doing the sensible thing and then doing something kind of radical and weird. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, when I wrote that book on work, I, I spent a lot of time with people who were trying to decide whether they should move to a new career, tired of what they were doing or feeling oppressed in it, feeling that they couldn't breathe, that their soul was dying in their work. And they use the word soul then without any knowledge of, you know, any kind of tradition of soul. It's just a natural term to come in at that point. You know, my soul hurts and my soul is not in my work. So... Uh, and then the other word they use is a puer word. They say, um, so many people told me, then they took a leap. That's a puer word, leap. That's what puer people do. They leap. They don't gradually you're, work into something else. Thomas, they take you're, you're a leap. In, you're in my personal lexicon right now. I'm, I'm, being, <laughs> I'm being exposed here. <laughs> so um, that's what I heard from people over and over again. I noted that. Uh, people just talking to me about their experiences. And I visited, you know, I went to visit people at their workplaces and at conferences, uh, networking and things like that. I really got into it, you know, really went to, to, to hear what people were experiencing and doing. And that's what I heard, that a lot of people are oppressed and their soul is uh, deadened by their work. And they can't live, they, they can't do it anymore. Of course, they have the, the pressure of financial need and being able to keep a, keep a job of some kind. But then I found so many people who told me they took the leap and they were so happy after that leap. They took, they went into a job or a new style of life that was quite different from where they were before, maybe the opposite. And so they felt it was worth it. They said, I took the leap and I'm glad I did. I didn't find many people who took a leap and were unhappy about the leap. Mm -hmm. That was not very common. So I felt that um, that uh, the, the work then that shows us that the uh, we have the Saint Exposure thing again. So we have a deadened soul from too much work, the work ethic, and then we leap. Like you take the jump, you you leap into another. You take a risk. That's a real poor thing. You leap into something that where you have a risk, and you you imagine maybe there might be salvation on the other end. And that's such a typical move of that youth. And um, and so that works, though, because the Pura and Sainix were were working together somehow. 
you know, they were people were very close to their old job and not knowing if they could really take the chance to make the move. And once they did, they were fine. There was this whole narrative that included Puer and Sanix together. That's pretty good. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's a that's an important. But and again, you're you're drawing from a narrative lens and not from something clinical and just simply the definition of terms. You're not saying, you know, anxiety and, you know, what parental images do you have in your mind that would keep you like that may be important to do but i just like the elegance in the, how the narrative maps on to these kinds of experiences so so let's you can read. always go, go uh, sorry what no please you can always go to the myth you know the myth of the parents if you want or some other uh, 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 uh essential narrative call it a myth uh a mythology that's really important Parents, it could be something else. Could be now. Let's look at the arc of your life. That's another myth. Or let's look at your, um, I don't know, your education, the whole arc of your education, and see what's going on. There are lots of things you can do to help uh, tease out the ingredients of those issues. But uh, you don't need to be psychological in any highly technical sense. Right. That might just get in the way. Yeah, I think it does. But you're, we're talking about a narratives that have been around for a very, very hundreds and thousands of years in some places. What are your thoughts on how science and the industrial revolution have changed or influenced that myth-making mechanism in our lives today? I'm very interested in this. I'm, I'm writing, I'm, I'm, trying to decide whether to write a book I'd like to write, I think, called called Soft Evolution, which is about um, how we need to evolve, not technically, but humanly, you know, our human lives and so much going on in our human interactions and so on have not evolved. We've, when you talk about evolution, all you think about is machinery, you know, and that's the Industrial Revolution. So what has it done to us? I think it's an effect, affected us tremendously. And the development of technology in the past just 20 years, I think, has, has affected us psychologically tremendously. More than we know, we're unconscious, I think, of the impact of technology on us. But it's making us, I think, as always happens, makes us more industrial and technological about everything in life. Even psychology has become technological. Mm-hmm. You know, really, it's mm-hmm. become a field where, uh, I mean, I, I remember 20 more 30 years for 30 years ago at least i remember going into a college talking to people starting their psycho- psychology career and the, the first course they were going to take was statistics so the first thing they have to learn i would ask them why you're studying psychology they'd say we i want to help people everyone said that and i'd say what's your first course statistics that's not the way to help people i can see it as a tool somewhere on the far reaches of your work but in fact, psychology has become a technological scientific uh, procedure. And that, that's why we want people to study statistics at first. I think that's really a sad situation. You know, it's, uh, but, it, but it's an example of how we are all affected by technology, whether we know it or not. And it's dehumanizing us. Another way of saying is deanimating us. It's taking the soul out of us. That's why I, I write so much about soul. Yeah, and, and on this note, it 
it's like every every stage in human evolution has had some kind of um, technological advance that serves the purpose of providing a metaphor for us to reflect on ourselves. And you know whether you start with Descartes and the you know the way the fountains worked, and you kind of move on to our current day, and we're we're so in it we don't think about how affected we are by the computer model as it relates to consciousness that's right exactly so it's a it's a good good topic to take on yeah i'll I'll advocate for your book writing (laughs) all right so to move back a little bit and and stop me if this is kind of if we have more to tend to here but we we left the thread of uh we, we connected with narcissism and tended to that and the next step was to go to jealousy and envy. I'm glad you brought us back. That's great. So jealousy is, uh, you have to understand, it's a quite natural experience. Uh, we're all insecure. It's our nature to be insecure. And in uh, those of us who don't look insecure, they pro- are probably symptomatically insecure. <laughs> It's an insecurity that's just part of life, and and we have to understand that. And we're insecure about our, our love, about being loved. And, and when we find someone, let's say jealousy in terms of a romantic relationship, you find someone that you really want to be with and you want to have this special love with them, and uh, naturally you're going to feel somewhat insecure until that gets settled somehow. And uh, so jealousy, it seems to me, is uh, is just, a, you know, it's expected at some level. But of course, it gets to be crazy, too. So people actually kill uh, out of jealousy. Mm-hmm. That happens all the time. You read about this all the time, people killing each other out of jealousy. So it's dangerous. And we know it's dangerous. And there, are, there are, there's a lot of abuse out of jealousy, physical abuse out of jealousy. So it's a dangerous thing. We have to be nice to be able to deal with it somewhat. But I think we have to start with understanding that it makes sense, that some jealousy uh, at some degree is, is part of life. And the jealous person wants to own the other person. So I would say, you know, our, our, our method is go with the symptom. Always go into the symptom, not against it. So, or ask, what does the symptom want? So what does that symptom of wanting to own someone? Should we just say, oh, that's bad? You know, you, people don't, you shouldn't own. Ownership is not what you do with another person. Or could you say, yes, when you are in love with someone and the security is there, Yes, feelings of ownership will come out, will come through. And that's all right, really. It's really all right. So in some way, you want to own this person. So how can you own this person without uh, being excessive about it? And how can you feel some ownership there? Is that okay? Some, Some saying, this is my person, this is my wife, or this is my husband, or this is my partner. You're proud of it, and you don't want it. This is not something that you're thinking of sharing. This is, uh, this, I own this in some way. There's a kind of ownership involved. 
I think it's very important to to explore that and let it be, you know, let that ownership be, because that's part of the symptom of jealousy. But uh, that ownership can become uh, overbearing and very difficult. And jealousy is really a hard thing. When someone's jealous of you, uh, it's very, very tough because you can't make a move without offending the other person or raising their suspicion. And then the person who is jealous becomes can become very um, masochistic in that they, they just love pain. Uh, if they can find some evidence that they have been betrayed, it makes them feel so good. You know, it's, it's that masochistic pain that... Uh, yeah. Uh, you, you know, it's it's a weird thing, but it happens. That's part of the whole thing with jealousy. But I think that jealousy, on the other hand, you could see that what jealousy does as a symptom. If you want to bring it home and be able to live with it comfortably, it lets you know that when you have it, when you're in a relationship, yes, okay, you can have some feelings of ownership if you want that, if that's useful to you, if it feels right to you. But there are limits on that. And you also have to be vulnerable to the other person. And uh, you can't go around being suspicious all the time. That's not, that's a symptom. That's not going to help any. So uh, the jealousy can be worked through to the point where you see its necessity at a certain, a certain kind of jealousy is really, really holds the relationship together. So you do become dependent on this other person. There's nothing wrong with being dependent. It's when you when you become super dependent and in a crazy way dependent that uh, things go bad. So again, I'd like to preserve the symptom of jealousy and all of its qualities in ways that can be very can be comfortable in a relationship. Yeah, and I I thought about um, that dual component where you're actually able to. And this is the term I like to use here, but where you're not colonizing the other person, making them into yeah, your own right. image. And that's right. So, so there's a there's a both and kind of quality where, you know, I think we could also probably say that ownership in this way also means to own your own experience and your feelings as a result. So if yes, yeah, ownership across the board. Yeah. Yeah. If my if my feelings of insecurity lead me to you know, track somebody's phone all the time without cause, then that's a sense of, of dominance and possessiveness that's not honoring the unique independence of the individual. Yeah. So I think that, uh, you know, that, that, that you have to make a, you have to make a decision or a judgment. Uh, is this activity, is it uh, a, a complex Jealousy as a complex that's got a hold of this person and it's extreme? Or is it jealousy that it's just a thread? It's a thin thread within the relationship, nothing too big, but it's a coloring, a certain thread that's in the tapestry of a relationship. And it has its place because, because it just can be a very natural thing that you don't want to share your this person. You've decided to come together for its important aspects of life. And it's not about sharing, but on the other hand, you can, you know, in the relationship, you may have to give, you know, try it out now and then and find out what's too much and what's too, you know, what isn't, what's okay. 
Uh, it varies from people to people. Some people are essentially more insecure than others. And so uh, you have to work that out. And maybe you have to and take some time together where the, um, that the, the range of being able to uh, move out from your relationship gets greater as time goes on because mm -hmm. you begin to trust each other and you develop uh, ways of talking and so on that make it possible. That's a possibility. So I'm not saying it's static, but uh, you have to look at the jealousy all the time and, and see that uh, jealousy is trying to accomplish something in a relationship. But it's, when it's symptomatic, even to the slightest, it can, it can actually ruin the relationship and ultimately end up in violence, which is that in acting out that shows you that there's absolutely no soul in this at all. It doesn't have any redeeming quality. Yeah, acting out versus being able to reflect on my wife. Said, yeah. My wife said something recently, which was I thought was really insightful, where she said, you know, we can choose to live out parts of our history or we can choose to observe what's moving through us. And the, the yeah, exactly. That's very nice. Yeah, I like that to move what's moving through us, because that to me is the whole secret of everything that you you acknowledge that there there are these things that uh, like jealousy and desire and frustration that moved anger that moved through us and our job is to have some kind of a response to them so that is creative and and workable okay so now to depression depression uh yes you know with care of the soul um even today, people are still reading that book. I can't believe it. Uh, 27 years out now. But um, the, the question I hear, the point I hear from most readers today when I sign the book is people say that depression, the chapter on depression is the most important. That chapter seemed to come through strongest. And I think this chapter, by the way, going back to our earlier discussion, is, is really, you know, like probably like 70% I owe to Hillman, a lot of that. I did an awful lot of work myself in, in depression through looking through medieval and Renaissance medical books, how they treated depression. And melancholy, the whole idea of melancholy and the humors of melancholy. So I did a lot of research on that. And so what I'm, what I'm saying is that I, I guess that uh, what I learned from all of this research was that melancholy was seen as a natural, one of the natural humors, one of the fluids, you might, emotional fluids that go through us. A humor is like an emotional fluid. And so uh, depression is one of those. Now, we use the word depression, not melancholy. Uh, depression has a certain clinical quality to it. So if I talk about depression, so usually someone in an audience will object and saying to say that, well, don't you realize that people are totally uh, de uh, debilitated by depression and they're in hospitals and all that? And I say, yes, well, I'm, I'm using the word depression. I'm trying to redefine it as I go. But I have also had letters from people in hospitals uh, for depression who tell me how much they appreciate this chapter on depression because 
it gives meaning to their depression. It's not that it takes it away, that they have a way now to get out of it, but that it gives them a way of imagining and picturing and talking about it. It makes it much easier to deal with. So that's what I was saying before about these things. We need to be able to, to imagine them differently, these problems that come up like depression. So melancholy, the, the whole theory of melancholy was that, and I called the chapter of that book, Gifts of Depression. I got that from these early books, medical books, because they said that the way they put it, depression is in the domain of Saturn. So they would call depression Saturnine, Saturnine humor or, or emotional fluid, Saturnine from the god Saturn. And they, they talked about, these books talked about Saturn and said that he was primarily related to lead, lead, the, the metal lead, heavy, dense, um, that he was connected with age, old, he pictured as an old man often, and that um, he was distant, like the greatest, the most distant of the planets, thinking astrologically, he's the most distant of the planets. So those are qualities that people associated with Saturn. But also, and there was, there was some famous writings done about this, you know, it wasn't 700, 600 years ago, um, that Saturn was also the source of artistic inspiration uh, theological and spiritual contemplation and the deepest thought and ideas. So what he could give, even though he had these negative, these qualities are hard to handle, the leadenness and the age um, he, and the distance and remoteness, he was also the source of the most exalted thoughts and ideas and artistic inspiration. So artists were it was said, we're born under Saturn. Hmm. So that's, that's the old tradition, a long, long old tradition. And that's what I, that what I, where I got my thoughts about this chapter on depression primarily was that, um, that yes, even though we have to suffer <laughs> the um, pain of depression, there are some gifts to be had from it that are really worthwhile. And Hillman used to say that depression is like this place you have to go. Only in depression can you get certain ideas. He said it was the mood of depression that allowed you to have certain ideas and certain inspirations. He also said something else. He said that we are, especially in America, we are a very youthful cheery society. We put little smiles on things. And we have, even today we have these emojis with we, smiles we put on our emails. I usually put the sad one on mine because Hilma <laughs> was saying that we are so depressive, I mean so cheery that depression is our main problem in response. It's like a, you know, the, the opposite coming in to play. So we invite depression by not and making it part of our life. And one thing I did notice, Hillman lived this thing out because if you ever asked him how he's doing, he would always give you a pretty depressive uh, report about how he was. <laughs> it was not very cheery, usually. 
Oh, you're such a letdown, man. <laughs> <laughs> you got me thinking all deeply now, you know. <laughs> but it, it, it I, I, I heard at some place, some, I can't remember where, but to be depressed, to push down into something. And, yeah. And it's unpleasant. And I think that needs to be noted. And, you know, this kind of tending is not one sided. And, and back to that romanticized, idealized aspect of depression, you know, it, it is difficult. It is horrendous. It is sometimes incredibly alienating. And your experience, uh, I am well aware of, is the same as mine as a clinician, is that if somebody can be tended to through that process, something emerges that's juicy. And, you know, oftentimes we can't do that alone, but sometimes we have to do it alone. And, and on the other side of it, there's, there's a sense of a hard earned, um, a hard earned reality approach to reality that in my experience, people feel interestingly excited by, because all of a sudden these possibilities open up to how they relate to what we in the collective consider to be negative experience or undesirable experience. I find dealing with depression the most difficult of all. Really, it's very difficult because uh, the person wants to be lifted out. And as long as they want to be lifted and be, you know, be cheered up, uh, you really can't, you're not, you're not letting the, letting that, uh, that fluid do its job, you know, you're not letting it be, it has to be there. And I think that's why we try in dealing with depression to n not to be cheery, but to stay close to the depression and uh, to find different ways to stay in it, but still move it at the same time. It's not easy, though. I find that very, comp very challenging, very difficult. Yeah, it is. It pulls on something in, I'll just speak, my, it pulls on something in me, which m must be some kind of, uh, I just noticed this part of me that can be affected by it. Uh, in, in encountering depression, it leaves a residue on each of us that is difficult to... Encounter. Kind of contagious. Yeah, it is. It really is. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm aware and of our time, and you are incredibly mm -hmm. generous with yours. I, I do... The only thing I want to jump into, which is an entire book of yours, and we don't have to do it quickly, but with all this stuff in mind that we're talking about, something you said earlier that I have said for a long time, I like very much, is to take it seriously. And it, it seems almost like care of the soul, you know, outlines all of these ideas. And then uh, a religion of one's own is where ethics come into play. And it's almost like this is this is the practice. This is how we relate to that. And your idea seems to be spontaneously that religious functions are created in the psyche and if if but somebody were to relate to that with a serious ethic their life would change could you riff on that for a little bit the religion of one's own was an important book for me i i shouldn't i realize now i should not have called it a religion because it turned off so many people hmm. I've, I've been told that over and over again that if i'd use some other word besides religion but that's what how i imagined it that we can create a religion of our of our own and that have something outside of us. 
But anyway, uh, what I wanted to do there, yes, was to show that the religions, see, I, I, my degree's in religion. I have a PhD in religious studies. It's my field. And uh, I love religions. I love the religions and spiritual traditions of the world very much. I think they're all highly corrupt in many ways, but they're, they're still very, very worthwhile. And, um, and I have tried to, in various ways, try to deepen and make more intelligent uh, the, uh, the practice of those religions. So to me, if someone wants, not, I just heard from someone just converted to Catholicism, I cheer it on. I think that's great. It's wonderful. But you have to, you have to be really in, keep your intelligence at hand because there's a lot of stupidity in there and a lot of, a lot of danger. So you have to be smart when you do that. Same with any religion, really. Uh, in Judaism, I also, a lot of people tell me that converting to Judaism. So, wow, that's fantastic, wonderful tradition. But boy, you better really keep your eyes open because you can be swamped there and something is not too good. So part of my work then, going back to my, my beginnings in the monastery and my degree in religion is to um, see that what religion has done in the past, especially, has been to allow us to care for the soul, to care for our souls uh, in external ways and in uh, very much in an ethical way. And uh, by responding to what we see to be the need around us or to our own uh, ideals, by really living them and doing something about them. But the religions are, are, are failing. Not, not surprisingly. I mean, all you need to know is how sexist they were mm -hmm. to realize that uh, that's enough to tear them down. But there's so many other problems. Abuse of children, you know, it's unbelievable. Um, I go to Ireland. I, I spent a lot of time in Ireland, my, where my ancestors lived, came from. And that country has changed overnight because of the uh, reports of sexual abuse on the part of priests and brothers, teaching brothers. So it's hard to find a, a really old-fashioned Catholic in Ireland anymore. It was just the opposite only 30 years ago. So the religions are, have been corrupted, and they're being shown for what the corruption they have had. They don't have good histories, generally. And um, so, But yet they serve such an important role. Jung used to say this, that the religion, without religion, we have no container for the all the experiences of the psyche. Religion gives us language. He used, you know, he borrowed from Catholicism for mm -hmm. his psychological ideas, even though he wasn't Catholic. He thought that the doctrine of the assumption that the Virgin Mary was assumed into heaven, he thought that was the most important thing to happen in culture in a long time because we finally got the feminine into the sky, into the place where the gods are. Instead of just a male god, we now have a feminine goddess up there. He didn't say that word goddess, but that's, you know, that's what he was implying. So he's thinking how the importance of religion that way. And what I want to do then was to suggest that we can change the situation we're in now without loss of religion. And that could be through being more intelligent about our traditional practice of religion by, 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 um, uh, 
valuing people on a quest, trying to find their way spiritually. That's a legitimate way of being religious, to go around on a quest, try to find find your way. I resent myself, people complaining of the cafeteria approach to religion. I always say that I like eating in cafeterias. I like all that different food that's like available. Yeah. And uh, so I, I, I applaud people who are on a quest and who try different things. And then there is the very, to me, very interesting way of doing religion, is, which is the, my model there is uh, Henry David Thoreau, who um, said that taking a bath was a sacrament for him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's like being in the water. He, he doesn't mean symbolically. First of all, it just means a ritual in his life, but being in water, a natural element that that really not only cleanses his body, but uh, assuages his soul in some way. I think that's that's the kind of uh, religion I'm interested in too, a kind of the spirituality or religiousness in everyday life that is not, not uh, justified by any kind of uh, formal religious language or anything like that. So when Thoreau says that taking a bath is a sacrament, I take him at his word, that's right. That's a sacrament in your religion. That's absolutely right. And, um, and for any of us to live ethically in our business life, that is practicing our religion, because ethics has always been part of religion. And uh, to, um, to uh, care, to treat people uh, uh, kindly and uh, with justice, is part of your religion too. There's so many aspects of religion to to uh, to reflect on death, to find ways to contemplate. If you find places to go where you like to walk, so you can be contemplative. That's to me. That's that's your religious life. Sometimes these are based on the formal religions, like monks like to walk and meditate at the same time. Sometimes not. It's a new thing that you just find in your life. That's part of your religion. So that's what I wanted to do there. And I think that that cares for the soul because the soul and spirit go together. And we need, we need symbolic forms. Like, like taking a bath for your soul is different from taking a bath just to clean your body. If someone says, and it's around our house all the time, people would say, I, I want to take a bath. I need, I need the relaxation. Well, that's caring for your soul. You're not just cleaning your body. You're doing something for your soul. I happen to think that the bathroom is one of the most soulful places in the house. I agree. <laughs> and uh, so taking a bath there is pretty good. And other things could happen in that room that could be very full of uh, depth and importance to the soul. That's another topic, you know. But um, <laughs> anyway, that's my idea. I felt that writing that book on religion was extremely important to me because it's, I, I, it seems to me the answers to this religious question are pretty simple and, and easy. They're not complex. We don't need to become secularists like the whole world is becoming. You toss over a form of religion, you have nothing left. Then you don't have a soul because you need religion for the soul. You, or you need spiritual practice for your soul of some kind. And uh, it's largely a symbolic activity. You need that for your soul, and without it, we become animals. Not animals, it's a bad word, but we become machines that are out of our control. There's something about 
some atheists that I know who are more religion religious than a lot of religious folks in modern traditions are. It's just it, it's so often I think it's a game of semantics that people are playing, and they're they're kind of playing yes. hide and seek with their own theology and philosophy. Atheists are very serious about these religious questions. You know, yeah, they are. <laughs> more serious than a lot of other people are. You're right. I feel too. I like to say that I have a lot of atheism in me for all of my interest in religion. But um, it's very important for me to be the atheist too, and to question everything, and to uh, not only that, but to live in an atheistic way where I'm not. Everything is not religious, and everything is not. Holy, you know, it's important to be in that place. It's one of the gods. It's one of the places to go. Oh, well, it's funny that that at one point we talked about a pile of manure, and we just are closing out on the bathroom being the most soulful place in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and people, you know, people at turning points in their lives have these bathroom dreams. I see them yeah. all the time. I wonder if you do. Where they are in a in a on a on a toilet seat or something, and they it overflows, and they're trying to find some way to stay clean in that mess around them, something like that, or they drop something in a to dirty toilet bowl, and they have to fish it out, things like that. You know, where uh, I think that those are very important moments when I see those bathroom dreams. I, I look closely at what's happening then. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm. Again, so grateful that you spent this time with me today, and I'm eager to listen back to the episode. Thank you for the books you write, and thank you for sharing the time. Thank you, uh, John. It's been a great thing. I never have an opportunity to go this far and deep into the questions, and, and I feel like I'm talking to a colleague who understands, and I hope that that can help other people maybe listening to us uh, feel that, uh, that uh, the importance that we give to our work and how all these, these things we're talking about are not just words, but of great importance. Of great importance. And it's part of my uh, religious practice. I mean, this, this project, this podcast has become a religious endeavor for me. Yeah, that's right. Seem to find my way.